all over the world this morning, people are doing exactly the same as we're doing here. Some in groups even smaller than this gathering here this morning. Some in groups numbering many thousands of people. What are we doing? Why do we come together like this, Sunday by Sunday throughout the year, with one short and glorious answer? You know what it is. The answer is, we sang about it in our opening song, Jesus saves. That's why. That's why we're here. For I'm here. Oh yes. Because Jesus saves sinners. And the songs we've been singing this morning have all had a focus on the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he does for us. You see, the Bible tells us that all things were made by him and not just by him but for him. That's why the universe exists, the Bible says. And it's marvellous to realise that this mighty Son of God who was involved with his Father and the Holy Spirit in the creation of the world came 2,000 years ago into a human body. And in that body he might suffer and die for our sins. So that we could know him. We could be saved from our sin. We could be made totally new. We could be given eternal life. So you see, we should never, never, never trivialize anything to do with the Word of God, the Bible, or with the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit. It is also absolutely glorious and special I'm sitting here this morning thinking you know I've been singing the praise of Jesus for, for more than 70 years and I still love it as much as ever I love it more than ever and you see I'm very conscious that I can't change any of you and I can't change my own life but God can so let's pray for the help of the Holy Spirit Father, we thank you this morning that we're part of a vast, vast crowd of people meeting in the four corners of the earth, meeting in the name of the same risen Lord Jesus, meeting to honour him and worship him and praise him and express our love to him, meeting again to hear what you want to say to us, Father, desiring to know you more intimately, more fully, more effectively. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work. The greatest work being done in the world this morning is the very work being done by the Spirit of God. And we ask for a share of that here. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to guide me as I speak, to guide all of us as we think, as we listen, as we hear what you're saying to us. And above all, guide us and help us in the response we make in Jesus' name. One of the letters in the New Testament is called Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because it was written to Jewish people who had become Christians. 
And Jewish people, of course, are variously known as Israelis or, or Hebrews or Jews. We don't know who wrote this letter, but there's so much in it that makes it clear that it is addressed to Jewish Christians, people from a Jewish background who would understand the significance of what the writer is saying. Let me read, first of all, the first part of the first chapter. It's brilliant, it's magnificent. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times, in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Then from the first verse of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, for if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer is referring back to the giving of the law in the days of Moses and Mount Sinai. An awesome occasion. When God came and spoke with Moses person to person and God was laying down the standards he required in the human beings he had made. Of course all those standards have been broken by every human being that ever lived. And here is the writer saying to people who came from that Jewish background in terms of their ancestry and are now have become Christians. Some of perhaps very shaky Christians, new Christians, baby Christians. Some Christians who were being tempted to turn back to the more familiar ways of the Jewish faith. And he warns them. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that, each, so that we do not drift away. That's a word to each generation. The picture is of a raft or a small boat drifting on a canal or a small river. And along the river bank or a canal bank there are landing stages just like the Fourth and Clyde Canal. And the danger is that the opportunity is there to land, to go ashore, to be quite different. Out of the water onto the dry land. Or simply to drift wherever the raft takes you and miss an opportunity that may never come again. The words that really strike home most forcibly to me at least from this passage is found there in the second chapter verse 2. Such 
a great salvation. What is the greatest thing in your life? The greatest thing in the life of every Christian surely ought to be this very thing that is spoken of here. This salvation. You know, I was saying to somebody just recently, when we were younger, when I was younger, and we talked about people becoming Christians, we talked in Bible language about them being saved. But now, it's maybe not just politically correct to use that expression. Oh. So we hear an awful lot more about people making a commitment. What's the difference? Well, talking about making a commitment is talking about something that I do or you do. Talking about being saved is talking about something that God has done and God is doing. And that's much nearer the truth than simply saying, oh, he made a commitment. Because commitments can easily be made today and abandoned tomorrow. So what can we learn here about this great salvation the writer is talking about? Well, he tells us it was announced by the Son of God. Now, it's rightly said, but not entirely true, that Jesus didn't come to preach the gospel. He did preach the gospel, but he didn't come primarily to preach the gospel. He came and lived and suffered and died and rose again, so there would be a gospel to preach. But we find, of course, as we read the gospel story, that Jesus did preach the gospel. He told people who he was. And he told people what he could do for them. He spoke in terms of his identity. Let's go to John's Gospel, for example, and just read some verses, chapter after chapter, and see what Jesus is saying about himself. Who is he? Who is this Jesus? One day he said, I am the bread of life. He'd been discussing with the Jewish people about they'd been referring to the time when in Moses' day and they were in the wilderness and God supernaturally provided stuff called manna in the desert to keep them alive. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He alone, you see, can and does satisfy our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst. And God has so designed us that in every human heart there is some level of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. People instinctively want to worship. They want to contact this God. Very often they end up contacting their own gods. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will never go hungry. Who believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice that word, never. This is for keeps. Turn the page to chapter 8. And what do we find Jesus saying there? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The darkness in the Bible symbolizes all that is evil and wrong and dangerous and of the devil. The contrast is obviously light. And Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world, the lightest, brightest light the world has ever seen. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never, there it is again, never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So we need bread, we need water to maintain our lives spiritually. We need light to see where we're going. We go even further on into chapter 11 and we find an even more glorious statement made by our Lord Jesus. His friend Lazarus has died and Jesus has come to visit the, the home of the mourning sisters Martha and Mary. And Martha comes out to meet Jesus and they start to talk. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Oh, Martha said, yes, I know, I know, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There it is again. Never hunger, never thirst, never walk in darkness. And now it's even better. Never die. You've had the old couplet, old soldiers never die, they only fade away. Well, I prefer my version of that. It says true Christians never die, they only... Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I've forgotten what I was going to say. True Christians never die. That's true. That's true. Absolutely true. I went for the first time in my life on Thursday to a humanist funeral. It was a very bleak affair. A very strange experience for me to be in a crematorium where I've conducted probably a hundred funerals. And to be there for another funeral. In the service, Jesus was never mentioned. God was never mentioned. Bible was never mentioned. It was all about the deceased. Well, it's right to honour the person who's passed away. It's right to speak well of them. But to stop short of any focus on Jesus, any focus on God, any focus on what Jesus has done for us. Absolutely none. But this word of Jesus has been quoted again and again at a vast number of funeral services throughout the world. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. True Christians never die. They only fall asleep. Because, you see, the New Testament doesn't speak about Christians dying. It speaks about them sleeping. Oh, are you afraid to go to sleep at night? I'm not. Sleep is wonderful, it's restful, it's, it's a wonderful gift from God. And when we come to the end of our life joined to Jesus, we don't die, we simply move into the higher realm of heavenly presence in our Lord Jesus Christ. But to see, if we haven't got him, we face death. Jesus died, he didn't fall asleep. He died on the cross when he bore our sins and experienced the consequence of sin, which is death, which is separation from God. That's why I cried out, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Because he was God forsaken for that brief time when he took our sins and died in our place. His identity. Go back to chapter 10 of John's Gospel. We find our Lord Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. There it is again. 
never. Perhaps the best known of all these I am statements made by our Lord Jesus is the one in John chapter 14 verse 6 and the one that perhaps we most need to remember and be aware of and speak out today in the UK and elsewhere. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about going away and leaving them they were disturbed, they were sad, they were confused, they were perplexed. He told them he was going to prepare a place for them and would come back and collect them. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many good, decent, kindly people are totally deceived into thinking that they can know God without coming to Jesus. That is not possible. Jesus said, I am the way. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. If we don't come to Jesus and through Jesus, we don't know God. Go back to John 12 for a minute. And there are two verses here which really belong together and I love them. Again, Jesus is coming near the end of life on earth preparing his followers for his departing from them and he says now, now is the time for judgment on this world now the prince of this world that's Satan, now the prince of this world will be driven out but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself and John adds, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die that's why I spoke about being lifted up from the earth being lifted up on the cross of Calvary. You see what Jesus is saying here? Through his death and resurrection, the mastermind behind all the power of evil in this world, and it is massive and massive and dreadful and frightening, Jesus said he is going to be driven out, he's going to be dislodged, he's going to be disarmed through my sufferings and death and resurrection. And by contrast, people all over the world are going to be drawn to me by my death on the cross. And it's happening around the world this morning. The power of Satan broken, all that is such good news. And Jesus drawing people to himself. There's a wonderful spiritual magnetism about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh yes, a wonderful spiritual magnetism. One of our Scottish hymnists said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down thy weary head, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and warm and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Yes, this writer of Hebrews is correct. He is saying that this great salvation was announced by the Son of God. He told those around him who he was, what was going to happen as a result of his death and resurrection. It was announced by the Son of God. And, says this writer, it was confirmed, confirmed by the saints of God. Now remember the New Testament tells us that every believer, every Christian, is a saint 
That's the word that's used to describe Christians. We are saints. We don't need to be canonized. We're already saints. Yes? Confirmed by the saints of God, the people of God, the children of God, who recorded his saving truth. Peter, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, wrote in the first of his two letters, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never, amen, never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. What magnificent language. You see, what Jesus accomplished and what is available to us because of what he accomplished was recorded by those who knew him who talked with him, who lived with him, who followed him, who learned of him. And for us, who come to him now, there is new birth into a living hope and an inheritance, a future that is guaranteed never to perish. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that tremendous? And John, when he came near the end of his version of the story of Jesus, we call John's Gospel, he, he told us that, he told the readers that there was more to it than he had been able to record. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. God gives us new life when we come to Jesus. God gives us eternal life. It's a spiritual life and it is not affected by death. It goes on beyond the gates of death. These things are written, said John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It doesn't mean, of course, just believing about him. It means believing and coming into him, believing into him. Yes, this great salvation was confirmed by the saints of God who recorded his saving truth and who revealed his transforming power. So the change in those who became disciples of Jesus when he was here on earth, when the Holy Spirit came upon them in power, the change was nothing short of absolutely dramatic. We read, for example, that the early preachers in Jerusalem were persecuted. The persecution of Christians started almost immediately after the Holy Spirit came in power upon the church. The Jewish authorities tried to shut it down, but it proved utterly impossible for them. You can't shut God down. And these disciples were determined to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. And when the persecution hit them, they didn't ask for an easier path. They didn't ask for God to restrain the persecutors. They said, Lord, you made heaven and earth. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. You did this. You did that. Now, Lord, consider the threats of these people and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Don't tell that verse of scripture to your insurance company. They'll want to double the premium. The place where they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. These men who had been locked in a frightened room on Easter Sunday evening for fear of the Jews, they, they were scared, they were dead scared. Their leader, the Lord Jesus, had been crucified. And they were des desperately afraid of what would happen to them. And Jesus comes and stands amongst them and speaks to them and spends 40 days in their company. And the Holy Spirit comes in power on these people who were scared believers. And suddenly they're as bold as lions and they will not be shut up. Yes, this great salvation was confirmed by those who recorded his saving truth and revealed his transforming power. And that's possible today. You and I, if we're not believers, we can come with our sin, with our shame, with our failure. We can come repenting, willing to turn around and change our life and go a new way. And we will be transformed as these people were transformed by the power of God. This great salvation was announced by the Son of God, confirmed by the saints of God, and corroborated by the Spirit of God. This salvation, says the writer here, which was first announced by the Lord, that's Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God, that's God the Father, also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, you see, the promise of God was kept. The Old Testament had many, many promises concerning the coming of God's Son in a future day and in the fullness of time he came. And just as the Father promised to send his Son, so a little later he promised to send his Holy Spirit and sent that Holy Spirit. As Jesus was saying one of the last words he spoke to his disciples, he said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. End of Luke's Gospel. We come into the beginning of Acts and we find again our Lord Jesus eating with his disciples and speaking with his disciples. He's risen from the dead but he can still share a meal with them. On one occasion while he was eating with them he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem but wait, wait, wait. For the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. But John immersed people in water, but in a few days you are going to be immersed in Holy Spirit power. And so it happened. See, God never, never asks us to do anything in our own strength or by our own wisdom. He always gives us the ability to do it. Whatever he commands us to do, he enables us to do. The promise of the Father was kept and the power of the Spirit was seen. If we go through, we haven't time to do it this morning, but if we were going through the book of Acts, we would find again and again and again the evidence of God's Holy Spirit at work. We find, for example, uh, Luke tells us the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. And that says something very interesting because in our day, in these days a lot of folks slip into church membership at the back door. They haven't met Jesus. They haven't been born again. 
but they get in they get in, that's why the church is by and large into a mess throughout the country but it didn't happen in these days the Christians were so positively positively, radiantly, gloriously different from the unbelievers that none of the unbelievers dared try and edge in among them and pretend to be part of them, they couldn't do it and yet, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number by the working of the Holy Spirit. One more example. Philip went to Samaria. And Philip preached the gospel there, told the people there about Jesus. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid all close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. They experienced what would be called in our generation power evangelism. They didn't only hear a preacher speaking words, which so often happens today and nothing else. But no, no, the Holy Spirit was powerfully active among them and evil spirits were being dislodged in the lives of people who were harassed and spoiled by these evil spirits and many paralytics and cripples were healed, healed and not surprisingly there was great joy in that city. Why do some Christians act so religious? You know, so religious. You go into some Christian gatherings and they lower their voices when they pray. You can hardly hear what they're saying. Uh, and they bow their heads and they, they say, the shh, shh, don't speak, don't speak in here, shh. You know. There's a place for that. Yes, there is. Don't misunderstand me. But these people, in that New Testament time, they were being so blessed. They were being saved from their sins. They were being healed of their illnesses. They were being set free from demonic powers. They couldn't contain the joy. Their joy was just overflowing, bubbling up in them. And that's a wonderful witness to non-Christians around us. When they see the Christians are just these crazy people that are always, always jumping for joy, they're always rejoicing over something that God is doing. Well, of course we are. Because our God saves as we sang earlier this morning. Our salvation is a great salvation. In our Lord Jesus we have a great God and Saviour. He is that great shepherd of the sheep. He is our great high priest. Oh yes. Are you experiencing this great salvation? It's only found in Jesus. We have to come to him. We have to surrender our lives to him. That's no big deal. After all he made us for himself. He suffered for our sins. And he works by his spirit to bring us to himself. I feel we're on holy ground in this place this morning. I don't know what God is doing. But I believe he's doing some good things here this morning. And if the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart. And saying listen. You've been kind of interested in Jesus. And kind of reading the Bible now and again. And this kind of stuff. But this is a day, if you haven't done it, to say, yes, Lord. To say to Jesus, I'm sorry I've lived the life I've lived without you. I don't want to live one more day without you. 
I know you love me enough to die for my sins. I know I am a sinful person. I need sins forgiven. I need eternal life. I need peace with God. Lord Jesus, I surrender. Don't go halfway. Don't go halfway. You see, some Christians like the idea of, some people like the idea of saying, well, I'll come to Jesus. I want to have him as my saviour. I want to be saved from my sins. But actually, I don't really want him as my Lord. I want a bit of freedom to do my own thing. Forget it. Forget it. If he's not Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. Let's pray. Father, we cannot measure the extent, the greatness of the love you have for us. Nor can we measure the greatness of your power to change our lives. Forgive us if we have been looking in from the outside and only just thinking about Jesus about the Bible, about being Christian. If that's where we are this morning, Father, will you gently but firmly bring us all the way to the point of total surrender and total freedom of a new life in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.